0: Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to continue this sermon series. We're actually going to wrap it up today as we've been thinking about discovering our story. We all have a story, and two weeks ago at our centennial, one of the things I hope became clear to you is how our story fits into the hundred-year story of our church. It's a rich story. It's filled with sinners becoming saints and doing amazing things for God, and our Church has a very clear chapter in this story of God as God is redeeming all things. And we are a part of the story that God is telling. And Paul's going to help us understand that in the book of Second Corinthians. So we'll be there in just a moment, Second Corinthians 5. But before we jump into that, I'm going to ask you, uh, do you suffer from we confusion? Do you know what we confusion is? It happens like this. I will walk out into the front yard with my oldest son. We will look at a plot of land that needs to be mowed. And I will look at my oldest son and I will say, Paul, we need to cut the grass. And he will say to me, by we, do you mean me? And I will say, yes, me needs to cut the grass. Me being you. Um, this also happens at the at the end of mealtime. Lauren has made this amazing feast that our family gathers around and we say the blessing and we all gather around the table and no one fights or complains and there's this perfect idyllic dinner that we sit down to. Happens every night. But we will, after after dinner... Uh, Lauren will say something to me like, we need to clean up the kitchen. And I'll say, by we, do you mean me? She'll say, yes, because I cooked all this. The least you can do is, is clean it up. My, my friend Zach had a really bad case of we confusion. Uh, we were living in Alabama at the time, and we lived in Alabama from 2001 to 2007. At that time, the University of Alabama, was, ter- was a, they were a terrible football team. They, they, they were really bad. While I lived in Alabama, the University of Alabama lost to uh, uh, the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. Okay? It they was bad. It was bad. Auburn beat Alabama six years in a row while I lived in Alabama. And so the Crimson Tide is not near. They were not near the football powerhouse that uh, they are today. And aren't you getting excited? It's July. We're talking about college football. It's exciting, isn't it? They weren't near the powerhouse that they are today. And my friend Zach would say things like, and he was a fan. He, he pulled for, for Alabama, but he would say, well, they need to do this, and Mike Shula needs to do this, and they and them, and they messed this up, and they didn't run this offense right, and, and they on the defense. It was, it was a lot of they and them. And something happened in 2007, 2008, somewhere along in there. Not too long after the program came under new leadership, I was talking with Zach. Alabama had experienced much more success than they had while I lived there. Exponentially more, you could say. And all of a sudden, man, we signed this kid. We we got this five-star. We've got these facilities. We are going to win the national championship. We are recruiting so-and-so. And I'm with this group of friends, and we're listening to Zach talk about all the things that apparently he and Nick Saban were doing together. So we said, Zach, are, are you on the are you? Do you work for the University of Alabama football program? Because you sure are talking like you do. But isn't it interesting how success, this story of success, began to emerge from Tuscaloosa, and all of a sudden, it's we. We did this. We did that. And I mention that to say it's funny how we are attracted to narratives of success. We can suffer from we confusion very quickly when we are able to attach ourselves to a story of success. And, and, and we live in a world that's broken, and there's all kinds of ways our world is, is exhibiting this brokenness. We experience death and, and at the atrophy of our bodies and decay and grief and loss, and, and all of that is going on in our world. And so in the midst of inevitable loss and inevitable death and pain that, that we will experience, the world has lots of different narratives. Narratives around which that we, we, we try to make sense of the pain and the suffering that we experience in in the world. The world is in search of a a meta-narrative. You know what a meta-narrative is? It's like the word metaphysical, something otherworldly. We're in search of like a framework or a story or or a narrative around which we can order our lives, around which we can see our successes and our failures in light of this, this larger narrative. It's a story that transcends us. And we can attach ourselves to lots of different meta-narratives that are out there. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul warns us against this. Paul warns us that this is a possibility, that we can do this, that we can attach ourselves to all these meta-narratives. Look at verse 16. He says to the Corinthian believers, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He's saying to the Corinthians that there are all these stories, there are all these narratives. You can can regard yourself and your triumphs and your failures and the the life that you live. You can order your life through this worldly point of view. And you can attach yourself to all these different meta-narratives, but you're called to something different. And as as we jump into this text today, I want to ask you, what are the narratives? What are the stories that you could or you potentially could attach your life to? What are the stories in our world around which you use to shape your worldview or to make sense of your losses and your successes? What are the meta-narratives that are in our world? I'll give you three examples. There could be more, there are more, but let's start with different stories that we use to make sense of our world. The first I would say to you is is the sensuality or the sexuality story. It's so common in our world. And I mention it because Corinth was very much attached to the sensuality story. It was a a place that was known for its promiscuity and its sensuality. And that wasn't a new thing for Corinth. It's not a new thing for us. The sensuality story actually begins in Genesis chapter 3 which God creates the world in Genesis 1 and 2, he says to the man and the woman, be fruitful, be fruitful, multiply. It's actually the, probably the only command of God we've gotten right. Be fruitful, be multi- multiply, fill the earth. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. But then the, the serpent slithers into the garden and says to Eve, did, did God really say, I mean, did God really say this was how you should order your lives? Did, did God really say you can't eat of this fruit? Did, did God really say you can't do whatever you want? Did God really say you can't think about your sexual lives any way you want to? Did God really say you can't fulfill whatever desire that, that you have? Did, did God really say that? And that is the heart of how we've perverted This good thing known as sex. We see that all throughout our world and how different iterations of that is so far from what God originally intended for men and women to enjoy. There's a dead philosopher. His name's Nietzsche. By the way, all the good philosophers are dead. His name's Nietzsche. He wasn't a Christian. But he tells a parable that really captures the sensuality story in our world today. There was a dragon, and this dragon didn't breathe fire. This dragon breathed out the command, thou shalt not. And the way the dragon ordered the people and and controlled the people was he just went around breathing, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. made all these rules and these regulations that were so restrictive. And then the people rebelled against the dragon. You know how they conquered the dragon? They stood together, they shook their fists at the dragon, and they said, I will, I will, I will. That's the sensuality story. That's the way our our world is, is making sense of human relationships. I will, I will, I will. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to control my impulses or my urges. Don't tell me how these are ordained by God. So there's an equally seductive story. Here's a second story, we'll look at it. It's called, I'm gonna, you could call it a lot of things. You might call it the LinkedIn story. But maybe you just call it the success story. The success story, the achievement story. You know, sometimes to numb the pain of all the brokenness and disappointment in our world, we lift up that one example. That one person who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they made something out of nothing and the whole world was against them, but they stood against that and and they sold lots of widgets and they became very successful and they made lots of money and they created wealth. And you could hear a version of that story on the Bentonville Square if you wanted to today. And at the end of hearing that story, you'll get the cheapest ice cream in town. And it's awesome. But the success story... It's intoxicating, but the success story isn't new to America or new to Western civilization. It's been around for a while. In fact, in the early part of Genesis, the Tower of Babel stands as the ultimate success story. God says to the people, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread out from here. Go and fill the earth, steward the earth. And what does humanity do? Oh, that sounds hard. We don't want to do that. We're going to stay right here and we're going to build a monument to our own ingenuity and success. And so they build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. And God says, You're not fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. You're not stewarding the earth. You're not going out and filling it. And so he confuses the languages so that humanity is forced to disperse the success story. But the Tower of Babel is humanity saying to God, We know better than you and we'll do it ourselves. And we'll achieve it ourselves. It's an intoxicating story. It really is. There's one more story. I'm going to call it the the nation story. The nationalistic story. the, The patriotic story. We're in the month of July. A few weeks ago, you gathered with friends. You grilled something. You grilled lots of somethings. And you ate more than you should have, and you waved flags, and it was great. We had a good time on the 4th of July. But I think it's important that—I remind us all that there is—there's some emotions that are evoked when we tell our nation's story, like down deep inside of us, the the chills that raise up on the back of your neck uh, that are similar to things that you feel in worship. We, we have a tendency to like confuse all of these emotions. We feel a certain way when the Star Spangled Banner is played, and we feel the same way when Great is Thy Faithfulness is played. There, there's just deep emotions there, deep feelings of, of loyalty. Those things are all meshed together for us, and it's not always a good thing. This, this comes out when somebody challenges the goodness of our nation's story. It comes out when when someone challenges the goodness of our story. I would remind us of what Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us of in the 1963 I Have a Dream speech. He said to those gathered on the National Mall that America has written a check that it cannot or refuses to cash that America has these aspirations or these ideals of liberty and justice for all, and yet only select groups of people experience the justice and experience those aspirations, while many people in the nation at that time did not. And he reminds us that of, of another phrase from some of our founding documents. You're, are you familiar with this phrase? In order to form a more perfect union? Friends, it's this idea that this nation that we live in is in the process of becoming. That there is this aspiration of what we hope to be in our nation, but yet we are not there. There is work to do to form a more perfect union. And what's happened in recent days, we've taken the aspirations that we hope to be and ignored our shortcomings. We think only of the aspiration of what we want to be And we ignore the voice of those who are saying, we are not yet there. There is work to be done. And for us to fulfill the aspirations of our founding documents, we're going to have to do it together. We are not perfect. And sometimes those voices that are saying, we are not at our aspirations are drowned out. They're accused of being unpatriotic or something worse. In fact, I was reading This week about how people who are writing literature that talks about the imperfections of our country, the history of slavery, the history of oppressing Native Americans, the history of excluding certain people, the history of the Jim Crow South, and the the, the legacy of that that we continue to live in, I'm reading about how literature of that type is being banned from public school libraries. It's being banned from public libraries. It's as if some people don't want to hear all the ways that we've fallen short of our aspirations. I even read about a group of people that are getting together some of this literature and they're burning it. I think we all can agree on something. Burning books is bad. Just kind of go through history. Anytime a group of people get together and burn books... Never a good thing. Never a good thing. There are aspirations. There are aspirations that we have. We haven't always fulfilled those aspirations. And because we're so tied to the nation's story, and because these emotions that we have are similar to the emotions that we have when we gather and worship God, to hear that our nation is not perfect is unsettling for us. And so we say to these voices that are saying our nation is not perfect and it has work to do, we say to them, hey, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And can I invite us to ask a a different question? In fact, can I invite us to hear James chapter 1, verse 19, where James says, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And, and so instead of saying, hey, what's wrong with you? What if we said, what happened to you? I mean, what happened in your story? What's your family story? What happened to you that makes you feel this way? The nation's story sensuality story the success story all those stories are out there and we can bind our lives and we can bind our fortunes and we can bind our families to those stories and we can use them to make sense of the world but paul says it does no good to regard each other from this worldly point of view because what paul wants us to know is that the success stories of our world they promise this good life but ultimately they never satisfy friend Every one of those stories will be found wanting. Every one of those stories will not ultimately satisfy. And so, let's discover a different story. Let's lean into the story of Jesus. What are the implications of the story that the Apostle Paul has given his life to telling and sharing with all the churches that he founded? Verse 17, Paul says, "'Therefore, Because we're not people of the nation story, because we're not people of the sensuality story, because we're not people of the success story, we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's our story. If if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So much here, friends, we could live here for a year and not fully mind everything that Paul is saying. But I just want to share three concepts with you in this amazing passage of scripture that describes the new creation. I want us to think about the new creation. I want us to think about this ministry of reconciliation. And then I want us to think about our call to be ambassadors. First of all, Paul says, We don't regard people from the worldly point of view, we are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? This phrase shows up throughout the writings of Paul. And and what he is tapping into is this radical invitation of the gospel. That we live in this world that's broken, it's frail, it's fleeting, it's, it's full of sin. And when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, we become in Christ. While we live in this world full of all of those things, this radical change happens. We move from an old way of living to a new way of living. We move from relying in ourselves and living in ourselves to being in Christ and relying completely and totally in Christ. And one of the things that characterize people who live in Christ is this bold faith in an already slash not yet kingdom. To, to live in Christ is to say, I'm already experiencing the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. I've been forgiven of my sins. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. I've been given hope and joy that I never knew. These things are already mine. And yet I recognize there is more to come. And yet I recognize that God is not done redeeming and restoring the world, but I'm going to live in Christ confident of what is on the way. That is why Paul can say, if you are in Christ, there is a new creation we're waiting for it, but it's also here. We're living in that reality. So, friends, can I remind us that, that in Christ, like everything is new? This is the hope of what it means to live in Christ. That, that everything is new. All around you, the world is falling apart. The world is subject to decay and loss and atrophy. But for those who are in Christ, everything is new. And a little bit of heaven breaks in as the church lives in Christ. No one embodies this more than the black church. What I want to share with you is something that that I have never experienced. I only read about it. And when I read about it, I said, that is a picture of new creation. Let me share with you this dynamic that happens in the, in the black church. And I hope I'll be a faithful storyteller today of what I've read about. I was reading a theologian, his name is James Cone. He, without a doubt, is the greatest theologian to ever come from Fordyce, Arkansas. Um, Those, you don't know how big Fordyce is, apparently. He's the greatest theologian to ever come from Fordyce, Arkansas. I would say he's also probably the greatest theologian pastor to come from the state of Arkansas. Incredible thinker. And he was explaining this miracle of the black church, that slaveholders used their religion to oppress their property and, and twisted the gospel in such a way that, that what was uh, it just—, just uh, how, how in the world could, could the gospel be used to, to justify slavery? But that's what happened. But, but in that process of the gospel being twisted and distorted, slaves in the American South said, you know what, you can keep that religion. But tell me more about this Jesus that was oppressed. Tell me more about this Jesus that was whipped. Tell me more about this Jesus that was spit upon. Tell me more about this Jesus that rose from the dead. And so it took hold. And, and a new expression of the church emerged in the black community. I'm going to paint with very broad strokes, but, but ultimately what happened as the black church took root in the South and particularly in the early days after Reconstruction and in the Jim Crow South, this movement of God emerged. And, and Cohn writes that something he uses the word eschatological happens. Eschatological just means what God has ultimately promised in the future breaks in in the present. He writes that something eschatological happens when the black church gathers on Sunday morning. This community of people that were not given opportunities in dominant culture, that were prevented from advancing in certain ways, that were relegated to day laborers, and seamstresses, and maids. They were relegated to, to marginalized to to this station in life. On Sunday morning, something eschatological would happen. Cohn writes that the janitor became the chairperson of the deacons. The seamstress became the church mother. The day laborer became the usher. And heaven that promised that every injustice would ultimately be corrected and made right in Christ, broke in on a Sunday morning. Everything was made new. And Cohn explained that to me, and I began to go back and think about my reality growing up. Our church let out at 12 o'clock. Sharp. Don't you go to 1201, Preacher. We let out at 12.01 sharp, and we had a ritual. We had a routine. We would sit around the foyer, and we'd talk a little bit. There'd be about 30 people that would sit around in the foyer and talk a little bit. And about 12.20, that same group of people that were sitting in the foyer talking would say, well, let's go eat now. And as a kid, and we would all go to the same restaurant, this little barbecue place down the street. And I would always say, y'all could have already been at the barbecue restaurant. Why were we sitting around here? So that little group would move to the barbecue restaurant. We would eat barbecue, sit around, talk, drink sweet tea. We'd finally wrap it all up about 2 o'clock. And I, you just need to know something about the stargrass household. That was part of church. Like I said, I, I asked to miss out on dinner one day and go do something else. And Dad said, no, you, you got to go to the barbecue restaurant. We're going to be there till 2 o'clock. This is what we do. We would get done about two o'clock and my friend Dwayne, who went to the Mount Zion AME Church down the road, would be coming in with his family. And I always thought to myself, man, I hope Dwayne never asked me to go to church. Because they don't get to the barbecue restaurant until two o'clock. What is going on there? We got to get home. We got to get on with the rest of our day. But friends, When heaven breaks into earth and when transformation happens, you got to stay a little bit. You got to tarry a little bit. You got to stay in that reality and experience heaven breaking into earth. They were in no rush to get to the barbecue restaurant. They wanted to stay and linger and tarry in that reality that was breaking in. You see, in Christ. Listen to me, church. In Christ, everything is new. Everything is new. And although we still live in this world of brokenness and despair, in Christ, heaven breaks in and transforms lives. And real change happens. We don't have to wait until we die or go to heaven. Real change happens when Christ breaks in. When you are in Christ, everything is made new. Now, Paul says something else that happens. When when heaven breaks in, relationships are reconciled. Look at verse 19. He says that God was reconciling the world to himself. Here's the phrase, in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What does the word reconcile mean? There are two parties who are out of relationship with one another. And what God does in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is, is bring these parties back into right relationship. You're going to see this word righteousness show up in this passage. It doesn't mean moral perfection. What it means is right relatedness. That God is reconciling the world. He's bringing the world into right relationship with himself. And we have some, some not very helpful images that we use sometimes to to think about this. I've heard people explain that, you know, because of our sin, God is angry, He's vengeful, He's wrathful, He's upset, and, and, and someone has to be punished. This angry, vengeful, rashful God has to punish all of this sin that is happening. Here's humanity shaking their fist at God, rebelling against God, saying, I will, I will, I will. God is angered by this, sends his one and only son who stands in the middle and reconciles these two to one another. There's some biblical language for this. But I don't think that should be the dominant image of what is happening in reconciliation. Because the Bible overwhelms that image with some some other images. And it's this this love of God, this, this love that God has that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And I want, to th- I want us to think of a different image for what is happening in reconciliation. It wasn't that long ago I had a new baby in the house. I, I, my, my youngest son is 12. That's hard for me to believe. But it wasn't that long ago that, that, that he was a baby. And we had a toddler in the house as well. And, and I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but, but Luke holds the record for not sleeping. For the first seven months of his life, he never slept. Never. Not one time. Not one time did he sleep. It, uh, we, need it, we need to get it certified. And, and, and he would be quiet, I think, but I don't think he ever slept. And something would happen at 2 a.m. every night Luke would begin to exercise his lungs. He would begin to let us know that he was unhappy, that he was out of relationship with his diaper, that he was out of relationship with his stomach, that he was out of relationship with all kinds, all kinds of wrong was happening in Luke's room. And pretty early on, just so that Lauren and I could stay married and keep our sanity and all that, we, we developed a system. We had to team up on this thing. And there were certain things that Lauren could do for Luke that that I just couldn't do. But we developed a system. And so the father would go to the nursery. The father would see this baby kicking and crying and out of relationship and in a filthy diaper and just really unhappy with the world. Pick up this baby. Change the diaper. Clean up all that was wrong in that situation put a new diaper on, try to rock the baby back to sleep. But then bring the baby to his mother. And the mother is able to deliver certain things to this baby that that I just wasn't equipped to do. And for a moment, after receiving the nourishment and the love that this baby needed from his mother, I think he actually would go to sleep. And all in our house became reconciled. It all was put back into right relationship. Friends, that's what God does in reconciling us. I mean, here's humanity. We're in our sin. We're wallowing in our filth and our rebellion. We're helpless. We can't save ourselves. Here we are wallowing in all of that. And God, out of his great love, picks us up and and cleans us. And then Jesus, through the blood of his cross, delivers the nourishment of his grace that we need, that we desperately need to live and to have a hope and to have a future. It comes to us. We receive it through this Holy Spirit that is now given into the world. And we are reconciled to God. So friends, in Christ, everything is made whole. Everything is put into right relationship. And then look at what Paul says. Isn't this an amazing thing that happens? We're made new. We're put into right relationship. So then Paul says, we are therefore. Christ's ambassadors. It is as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Listen to that. It is as if God is making his appeal through us. Paul wants us to understand that whatever our story is or becomes, a central part of our story has to be our vocation as the ambassadors of God. God fills the church with his Holy Spirit. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. He calls us to be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. And he invites us to go out and to implore the world, be reconciled to this God. Stop wallowing around in your filth and your despair and your sin and your shame. Stop living in this broken world. Stop attaching yourself to all these stories that never satisfy. There is one who desires to reconcile you to himself. We're ambassadors. You know what an ambassador does, right? You're the proxy of the king. You're a proxy of the kingdom. It's not that we're trying to get everybody to go somewhere else. What the ambassador does is bring a little bit of heaven to earth. The ambassador in a foreign country brings a little bit of the home country to this foreign land. And so church, that's our calling. Every day, every moment, every week, we're bringing heaven to earth. We're the ambassadors. We're the proxies of God in our community. And maybe you're filled with a little bit of fear and anxiety as you think about our world. I mean, I only mentioned three stories that run counter to the gospel. But I bet in your head, you're thinking of a lot of other stories. You're thinking of stories in our world that are very prominent, stories in our world that run counter to your values, run counter to what you want for your family. It's easy to be filled with fear and anxiety as we think about the brokenness in our world and the relational dysfunction in our world. And so sometimes the church is taking this posture of, well, really, we've taken two postures I don't think are very helpful. One is, let's sequester ourselves. Let's be this little enclave. Let's shut down our embassy. And let's be this little enclave and we can keep everybody safe right here. And we can perpetuate our values and whatever happens in the world is just going to happen, but we're going to be okay. But then the other posture is, let's go to war. Let's fight the culture battle. Let's show everybody why they're wrong and why we're right. And I don't know that anyone is ever going to get to heaven and say, you know, the reason I'm here, I lost an argument with Mark Snodgrass. It was just so compelling. He just tore me up one side and down the other. I lost the argument and decided, well, I guess I'll surrender to the Lordship of Christ. That's not going to happen. We're ambassadors, where everyone is welcome. And so here's the mission of the church, neither to sequester nor to fight. What did Jesus do? Jesus loved the world into a better story. Is there a better story that you can think of than this story in which all are welcome? This story in which everything is made new? This story, is there a better story than that? where relationships are reconciled to one another and people are made whole. So friends, our mission today, the mission of the church is to love the world into this story. It's the best story there is. So I was thinking (laughs) about we confusion. And I think when God finally completes this story that he's telling through the church, you know, when we get to the end that the book of Revelation talks about, the new heaven, the new earth, it's going to be amazing. We're bringing a little bit of that into reality every day. But, but one day we're finally going to get to the end and, you know, we're, we're still going to suffer from we confusion. It's just going to be a little different. Because this is what I think is going to happen. I, I think we're going to walk in the new heaven and the new earth and we're going to see lives that are transformed and we're going to remember the stories of people that were broken, and they were put back together through the ministry of reconciliation, through the church. We're going to hear the stories of people who were hungry, and they were fed through the ministries of the church. We're going to hear the stories of people who were depressed, and they found hope and life through the church. We're going to hear these stories. We're going to retell these stories. We're going to celebrate these stories. We're going to walk hand-in-hand with Jesus, and we're going to say, Hey, Jesus, you remember that time where their lives were broken? Hey, Jesus, you remember that time when they were overcome with shame? Do you remember that time when these people were hungry and we fed them? Remember that time where we gave hope? You remember that time where we worked so that lives could be restored? You remember when we did that, Jesus? What Jesus will not say is this. Uh, Actually... Did you live a sinless life? Uh actually, did you take the sins of the world on the cross? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, actually, were you the firstborn of the resurrection? Did you conquer death on behalf of, of all of humanity? Because I think you're I think we've got a little bit of confusion going on here. Jesus won't say that. We'll say, Jesus, do you remember when we did this and we did that and this life was transformed? And do you remember that, Jesus? And he'll say, Yeah, I do. We did good, didn't we? Because what's Paul say? It is as if God is making his appeal through us. Through us. Church. Jesus isn't inviting you to be his ambassador. Jesus is inviting you to share this good news of the resurrection, this good news of, of hope. So how will you share that this week? How will you share that this week? How will you share that in your life, the decisions you make, the conversations you have? How will you share this good news of new creation, friends. I invite you to stand. Worship team's gonna come. And as we think about this calling that we have to join with God in the reconciliation of all things, can I tell you some good news? You do not do it alone. You cannot do it alone. Never once will you walk alone in this mission. But hand in hand with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will share with the world this good news of what God has done in Christ, and we'll bring hope to the world. Church, this is our mission. Let's love our world into a better story, and let's do it hand in hand with God, knowing we never walk alone.